Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagro Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congressional microps of the Biden administration's defense spending requests are accelerating as prominent lawmakers make the case for either the White House's approach or flatly oppose more money at a time when the United States is trying to lead its allies to deter conflict in Asia and support an important partner against a brutal Russian attack. At unprecedented speed, the European Union has granted Ukraine and Moldova candidate status on an accelerated basis, telling Georgia, however, that it has more work to do. In 2008, both Ukraine and Georgia were proposed as EU and NATO members. In Asia, China has launched its third aircraft carrier with electromagnetic catapults as Beijing also steps up its intimidation of Taiwan. This as South Korea launched its first ever satellite on an indigenous launch vehicle as analysts await Pyongyang's next nuclear test. In Israel, the eight-party Bennett government has unraveled with Yair Lapid now serving as a caretaker prime minister as new elections are expected to be announced and Bibi Netanyahu potentially vaulted back into power. And much of the world is scratching their heads in the wake of three contradictory Supreme Court rulings and the January 6 hearings that are casting doubt on America's long-held status as the world's leading beacon for law, order, and sensible constitutional government. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, uh, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top aerospace and defense lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, who is also a podcast host uh, himself of Brussels, uh, Brussels Sprouts, uh, a terrific program that I commend our audience uh, to listen to on a regular basis, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dove Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much for uh, joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues. And tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again for uh, joining us. A lot to discuss and not a lot of time to do it in, given how busy uh, everybody uh, is. Dove, welcome back from uh, your uh, trip uh, and look forward to hearing about um, uh, matters in South Korea. Michael, start us off. Uh, you've had an exceptionally busy week. We were just talking about that because of markups and, and where we are. Talk to us about markups, where we are, and what do you think the highlight features of it are? And Dove, want to get your sense on this uh, as well. Go ahead. Well, the House marked up uh, the National Defense Authorization Act in a long session on Wednesday that started around nine o'clock in the morning on Wednesday and didn't end until 2.30, uh, 2.13 uh, a.m. on Thursday morning. There were over 900 amendments uh, filed by the members of the committee, which I think was a record. Uh, so it took them a while to consolidate and get through them. But in the end, the bill passed with an overwhelming bipartisan majority, 57 to one. The only person to vote against uh, the NDAA uh, the committee was Democratic Ro Khanna from California, and his major objection was uh, the increase to the top line. Uh, as we talked about previously, there was an amendment. Uh, the amendment was $37 billion, 
Uh, I mentioned I mentioned the pass would be just south of 40. Uh, and that amendment was actually introduced by Jared Golden, Democrat uh, from Maine, uh, had strong bipartisan support. Uh, 14 Democrats uh, voted for that amendment. So the top line uh, was raised. And uh, Democratic uh, Congresswoman Elaine Luria came out saying that she hopes that the spending deal will result in a defense budget number that's somewhere north of that 37 billion number. Uh, as we mentioned last week, the Senate had uh, added 45 billion uh, to their to their top line. So we're talking about a difference of about 8 billion between the two. And, and we were able to find out too, even the Senate process is closed, only one Senator voted against uh, that top line amendment. So there's strong uh, bipartisan support uh, you know, to increase uh, defense spending. Uh, the defense subcommittee on um, appropriations marked them full committee. Uh, they did not add money to the top line. So that um, bill passed along a party line vote uh, with Republicans uh, voting against it. And I think it's unlikely uh, that that bill makes it to the floor. Uh, and there'll be a repeat of last year where we probably see that go straight to conference. Now, I will say that, you know, they, even though there were a lot of amendments, they were, they were fearful that the decision on Roe versus Wade would come down uh, prior to the markup, and then they would have to fend off uh, abortion amendments, which really could have sunk the bill if they were put on. Now the fear is the decision on Roe versus Wade was released today. The Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade officially today, That's and right. there will be major concerns when this bill goes to the floor that the Democrats may put some abortion amendments on there, which could defeat the bill on the floor when it comes to the floor of the week of July 11th. Um, and uh, later in the program, I want to ask everybody uh, about the Supreme Court's uh, rulings, because many, especially overseas, are looking at this as not really guided by any phys- philosophical principle, aside from anti-abortion, pro-gun, pro-religion, uh, pro-religion uh, as opposed to what would most would consider sort of classical constitutional tenets uh, that have governed our approach to these issues uh, over 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 time. Uh, Dove, let me um, I want to I want to get to cats and dogs with Michael in a minute, but Dove, kind of give you an opportunity to weigh into this uh, on on where you know we didn't get your view on markup uh, last week uh, on the Senate side, and want to get your sense on both of those uh, and and how all of these issues and Supreme Court rulings might actually right. I mean, there there are those, and I was talking to a Republican friend out on how this actually makes the entire problem more complicated going forward uh, politically. Um, ultimately, you know, what are what are the political implications? We can get to the geostrategic implications in a minute, but talk to us about markup and, and how these rulings on guns, on religion and on abortion. Uh, and, and indeed, right, I mean, that's why these justices are in of, of sort of a common mental framework is to achieve these three goals, uh, right? We have some corporate uh, unraveling of the import of the power of the federal government that's going to come through, right? I mean, effectively, the government cannot set environmental protections or anything else. That's expected as well. That business effectively should regulate itself uh, is, is likely where they're going to go. That's the fourth tenant. But sort of give us your sense on how we, where we are on markup and how all of this affects where we eventually end up. Well, on markup, uh, it's, I think uh, Elaine Luria has it right. Uh, the Senate is uh, somewhat higher than the House. Uh, it's not as high as uh, some of us thought it would be. Uh, I think there, would, there tended to be a feeling that uh, the Senate would come in well over 50 billion. Uh, didn't do that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think this will all not get resolved until after the election for obvious reasons. Uh, if an off the air when there's no election, they can't get it all together. Then certainly when there's an election, they, they uh, are not going to move. That's at least my sense. Michael may disagree. Um, 
the the court decisions uh, it, this is this creates a wild card in the election i think there's been a sense that the republicans would clean up in the house because of uh, gerrymandering uh, because of dissatisfaction and disaffection with Biden, with the administration, with inflation and so on. Uh, but these rulings uh, could get suburban voters to really think twice. Uh, now, will the Republicans be able to keep uh, take the House? I think uh, the odds are very long against the Democrats. But the Senate may be different. And uh, it may be different because, again, a lot of suburban voters are not going to be happy with not so much the specifics of the court rulings, but the direction of the court. And of course, the funny thing is that unless uh, something happens to some Republican justice, like what happened to Anton Antonin Scalia, uh, this is going to be a six to three court for a long, long time. And, and uh, uh, it's not clear that anything will change. But uh, nevertheless, I think people may ch decide that they want to vote differently because uh, they're very uneasy with the direction that the court seems to be taking. Uh, and, and, and we can see that, right? I mean, 70% of Americans uh, believe in the right to an abortion, just like 70% want some form of, of uh, gun control as opposed to unrestricted. And the, the duality of uh, the gun legislation, however mild it is going through at a time when, um, you know, as, a, as a, somebody who was born and raised in New York City, believe, you know, places are different. And in Texas, if you want to carry a gun, go ahead and carry a gun. But New York should be uh, able uh, to, um, to to decide its own laws uh, on that, um, ultimately. Um, Michael, let me go to you. A lot of dogs and cats here really quickly walk us through. I mean, I, I, I do get a little Groundhog Day uh, on BBB and all of the other things when we do the pre-show planning. You're, you always put those on your list. Let's, let's give you a minute to round us up on, on, on where, we, uh, where, where we are on all that. Sure. And, and uh, it's, this is not going away anytime soon. Because uh, now the Democrats, you know, big problem is the looming expiration of Affordable Care Act subsidies. And they need a vehicle to put that on and they want to do it in the reconciliation vehicle, which, again, is, is, is some form of, of build back better. Uh, the problem is, is that those subsidies are going to cost about two hundred twenty billion dollars over 10 years. And in order to get support on a reconciliation package, they need Joe Manchin. And his big concern is the debt and paying down the debt. Uh, and Democrats continue to do things that will add to that. I mean, the president just asked for a gas tax holiday of 90 days. And even the Democrat who chairs the House Infrastructure Committee came out uh, against it, you know, because it would cost about $10 billion and blow a hole in the Highway Trust Fund and hurt their ability to pay for the infrastructure bill that just passed. It's, it's, also, it's also a bad economic idea. Gas prices going up is what will control. Gas prices will come back down because it, you break demand. Don't do anything to change that vector. The higher the prices go, the more unsustainable they are, and they'll come down unless you artificially, you know, reduce the cost on people, in, in which case you're artificial. You know, I, I'm just not sure it's a good. I, I agree. It's not a good sound. <laughs> I, I agree with you as well. Uh, and there seems to be bipartisan uh, opposition to that. And, and you know, and, and when it comes to reconciliation, BBB, a mansion has said again this week uh, that there isn't a deal that's particularly close. And we really, there's only 12 legislative days left until the August recess. And then they're only in for three weeks in September, which they're going to have to focus primarily on funding the government, uh, which really leads us to USICA because, you know, everybody has said USICA has got to get done before the August recess. And there's only 12 legislative days left. Uh, the big four, you know, Pelosi, Schumer, uh, McConnell and McCarthy met earlier this week uh, to continue to pare it down. 
Uh, they've dumped the Safe Baking Act out of there. They've dumped the climate provisions out of there. Uh, but it's moving, but it's moving very slowly. And now we're starting to see some repercussions. Uh, I think just yesterday, uh, Intel, who's preparing to build a huge microelectronics facility in Ohio, delayed their groundbreaking ceremony because of the delay in the CHIPS Act and right. sent out a statement calling on Congress to move uh, forward quickly on this. So, and, and then, you know, there's been a lot of time eating up on the calendar on guns. I mean, there was, as you mentioned, a um, framework agreed to last week. Uh, they were hoping to have a bill last week. They didn't, but they, they worked hard through the weekend. Uh, and the Senate did put together a bill, did pass yesterday, uh, you know, which deals with the boyfriend loophole, which, you know, limits domestic abusers' ability to buy guns. Uh, if a purchase is over 20, anybody over 21, there is a minimum waiting period of three days. Uh, they, there is funding for red flag laws, uh, more money for school security, new restrictions on straw purchases of weapons in order to cut down on gun trafficking, and a broader definition of, of gun sellers. And um, there is going to be a vote in, in the House on, on that today, and it is expected to pass and head straight you know, to the president's desk. Right. Um, and and you know, I think you know, we see a huge dichotomy here because you see people like John Cornyn, you know, who's in the Republican leadership leading on this, Senator McConnell, uh, who is the Republican leader voting for this bill. Um, and at the same time in the House, you have the House Republican leadership whipping against this bill, uh, which right. I think is foreshadowing what we're going to see on defense spending uh, next year. And, and you know, Senator Cornyn you know, was standing a lot of slings and arrows back at home. His own Texas Republican Party adopted a resolution formally rebuking him uh, for supporting uh, this gun legislation. Right. Um, well, I mean, well, let's let's just be honest. It, it does virtually nothing to solve the problem. I mean, we also saw police buffoonery of a first order uh, there with no doors were locked. People had body armor. They could have intervened in the first few minutes. They could have intervened before the guy went in the building and, the, and they choose, chose not to. So this is, um, you know, you know, it's, it's not abundantly clear how it, uh, you know, necessarily changes the vector in a, in a more meaningful fashion. Very quickly, primaries. Uh, we have more primaries. What do uh, they possibly mean uh, very briefly. I didn't pay as close attention to primaries this week because the NDA markup was Wednesday and the primaries were Tuesday. And that's your money maker and we understand that. <laughs> exactly. But I think, you know, it's a it, 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 recurring theme. You know, we see, um, you know, some of these pro-Trump candidates winning, some not, but again, Trump endorsing folks that he knows are going to win like Katie Britt in Alabama. Uh, he had previously endorsed Mo Brooks and then withdrew his, uh, his, his, his endorsement. But Katie Britt was going to win with or without uh, you know, Trump supporting her. You know, they, but there are primaries that are looming that people are very concerned about. I mean, for example, you know, the primary in Missouri uh, for Senate, uh, Eric Greitens you know, is ahead in the polls. And if he is the nominee, the Republicans have to put a lot of resources into that primary uh, to shore him up. And he is going to be far outside the mainstream and someone who would line up with, you know, isolationist policies like J.D. Vance. And then again, there's concern about uh, Blake Masters in, uh, in Arizona if he ends up winning the primary there. So uh, Trump is now heading to Alaska to campaign against Lisa Murkowski, uh, who, you know, is a moderate uh, senator right. uh, Republican and voted for this gun legislation. So, you know, this is it's going to play out uh, between now and September. There's a lot of primaries and a lot of people on uh, on the far left and the far right. And I think some will win and some will lose. But I think in the end, we're going to see uh, more of the extremes coming in in the general election than we've seen in the past. Moving on, I would also say that one of the most important things for all these guys, including Joe Manchin, is called re-election. It's not really worry about the debt. It's about re-election. Um, let me uh, shift. Jim, uh, EU uh, awarded candidate status to uh, Ukraine and, and Moldova. Uh, why does this matter? 
ultimately? And is there a way to further accelerate the process? People are saying it's going to be a multi-year process. Uh, and there are those saying, actually, it, it might move a little bit more quickly. W why is it important? And why is it important that we move quickly? And why does it matter? Well, I, I think it matters in a couple of ways. One is that uh, just in terms of the morale of the of uh, Zelensky and his government and the Ukraine people, I think it's it, it boosts the morale, showing that uh, Europe is uh, is more welcoming now uh, than they were earlier on. Remember uh, the Maidan and all that started uh, when it looked like Ukraine was getting too close to the EU. So, so it matters right now that Europe at this time of peril for Ukraine uh, on a political basis is embracing that country. It matters also that Putin sees that the EU was able to do it, that the EU wasn't going to break down and that it wasn't going to happen because Hungary or, or another country might object. I mean, what we're seeing in NATO right now, which is another story, but but I think it's important that Putin sees that uh, the EU stands behind Ukraine and is going to move forward with eventually Ukraine becoming a member. And, uh, of course, that's going to get his back up uh, and uh, and just and he will say things like there's not going to be a Ukraine that will join the EU because Ukraine will be, you know, there's going to be all kinds of of uh, bloody minded threats coming out of Moscow about that. So it, it matters there. Um, I think it matters, too, to the European members of the EU to make sure they know. Uh, the nations that are supplying equipment and doing these things that the EU as an institution uh, is standing behind uh, Ukraine as well. And so they as members need to do that. And at NATO, too. NATO should see that EU is playing its role to also stand behind the Ukraine. So so a lot of this is just morale. And a lot of this is just showing unity and showing that the EU is not as feckless as some thought it would be and is, and is going to, to stand behind Ukraine. But it is going to take a long time. It's, I, there's not a fast. I, there's nothing about the EU that's fast track. <laughs> so right. I, I can't see that this is going to uh, that it's going to happen anytime soon. And I think that's not the point at this stage. The point is that the EU did what it did, that it was successful in doing right. that. And, and that's the point more than anything else. Um, I, I think from a messaging standpoint, by the way, um, the annual EU uh, US uh, Defense uh, and Future Forum uh, Atlantic Council hosted it this year. Uh, downtown. And it was really incredible how European and American, EU and American officials were in such simpatico in a way that we've not seen in a long time, whether we're talking about the Asia Pacific, whether we're talking about Ukraine, Russia, where, whether we're talking about sustainability, uh, and even, you know, transparency, misinformation and disinformation, the, the confluence of those uh, was really very welcome, given the important role that the EU plays in security. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't think a stronger, better EU is a threat at all to NATO in any fashion. Indeed, it makes the NATO alliance stronger uh, by giving it some of the tools that are outside the purview of the NATO alliance. For example, the EU's extraordinary financial uh, uh, muscle. Let me take you, you know, you, you talked a little bit about bloody mindedness uh, and, and language from the Russians. The Russians really are stepping up their pressure. They're cutting off gas supplies. Big problem for Spain, for example, at a time when there's a heat wave in, in Europe and energy is in high demand. So the Russians know how to wield that weapon. Uh, Lithuania, a, a small nation with literally the heart of a lion that doesn't shrink from any anyone, whether it's called China or Russia, uh, has, um, you know, has said, hey, look, you know, Kaliningrad, we're not allowing rail lines that support, uh, that violate EU sanctions. If you want to move stuff there, you're welcome to do it by sea on the Baltic, but you're not, you're not going to do it uh, overland, even though I think passenger traffic is not banned unless it's for sanctioned individuals, right, for transit. 
Um, talk to us, uh, Jim, about how the Alliance needs to think this one through, because this has been long a trigger point, right? I mean, that gap, I mean, if you look at it, the Baltic nations have a much bigger border than they do. You know, the, the Latvian National Security Advisor said that, right? We in the Baltics have a longer border with Russia than we do actually with uh, the NATO alliance. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I worry about Lithuania all the time. I mean, this, this you know, if you remember the Danzig Corridor, uh, 1939, uh, as a result of the Versailles Treaty, uh, was used as a pretext by Hitler uh, to... Uh, to go up against Poland. I mean, this kind of geograph man-made geographic feature and error uh, has has always led to problems. And uh, and so yeah, I think having Kaliningrad cut off the way it is, uh, you know, it was a it was a problem waiting to happen. And we saw this in 2014, by the way. Uh, the Russians wanted to move uh, forces or or equipment out of Kaliningrad to uh, to take part in the invasion of Crimea. And Lithuania said no way, uh, and uh, and I I, I was the, the Dazdi then, and I we were all, you know, going my God, this is this could really spin out of control. Uh, it didn't, but here we have it again, and it's something that that should be worrisome. I will say, like like you pointed out, and just to foot stomp it, uh, Lithuania is sticking very strictly by what the EU sanctions says. So there's a lot of things that are moving through, like passengers and non-embargoed equipment and this kind of thing. So really it's, it's a matter of what does Putin want to make of it? In other words, if Putin says, look, this is, this is not something I'm going to just brush aside as being marginal, what's happening in Lithuania, I'm going to make this a test of NATO and I'm going to really uh, screw, uh, put the screws down on Lithuania and we'll see what NATO does. Lithuania will go to NATO under Article 4 and say, I'm really being pushed and pressured by the Russians here. Uh, I need NATO to say something uh, and, and do something. And then and that could be a test uh, uh, you know, to NATO. What will NATO do in this case? So uh, we'll, we're going to have to see what Putin wants to make of it. Well, and but and but Putin already has said, right, that if this goes on for more than three months, uh, we are threatening military action. I believe all of these Russian threats should simply be ignored because it makes a lot of threats every day. And the most it can do is not even fully cut off gas because it still wants to get some money. Right. So it plays with the gas knob a little bit. Um, I mean, ultimately, how does how does the alliance need to respond? I mean, don't don't we need to respond more forcefully right away and say, it's a transit, right? There's no guarantee. You are not going to allow you to break sanctions. Hey, don't attack Ukraine and we won't be beating the daylights out of you. Well, I think right now it seems NATO and the, the West, they're, 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 they're putting the, putting the, pinning the rose on the EU to be responding uh, because it's an EU sanction. They're an EU member and the EU has, has been, you know, quite vocal about, about this. So I don't, I think it looks like at least today, uh, they're they're letting the EU be the spokesperson. But you're right about NATO. NATO is going to have to say something too, particularly if Lithuania goes to NATO and says, under Article Four, okay, we're here to tell you we've got problems and we need NATO to do something. What NATO will then say and then do is going to be, it's going to have to be proportional to what is happening and what's coming out of Moscow. And and you're right, you hear a lot of threats out of Moscow, but some of these we have to heed. And I think we're going to have to figure out, is this something where we're going to need to put uh, parts of the NRF into Lithuania? Are we going to have to put up a, a stronger air policing presence? I mean, there's things NATO can do uh, if, if the Russians accelerate. And I think we need at, in Brussels right now to be preparing plans for that. And I hope they are. 
Right now, the EU is on the front of front of this, uh, but I think NATO is going to need to stand next to the EU pretty soon if this is escalated by Moscow. Uh, and I should point out, right, that under the Treaty of Lisbon, I think it's Article 40, 42.7, uh, that um, is the EU version of Article 5, uh, right? Right. Uh, Dove, let me just very quickly bring, bring you in on this because you were just in the region, uh, and I know that you had some conversations with folks over the past week on this as well. Sort of, you know, how, how do we need to navigate this? And then briefly give us your take on, on Turkey um, that is, that is um, um, you know, still making its... Uh, opposition clear uh, and and you could hear clearly um, across a lot of the EU folks when you spoke to them privately how they were bristling you know these are things for sovereign governments to do it's up to Finland to decide who who constitutes what and who's a terrorist or who's not or who should be punished and who shouldn't be um, and and sort of you know a lot of them saying like good for Sweden and good for Finland and it's up to them to resolve this and how dare the Turks dictate terms to us this is the reason why we don't want them in the EU, much less in NATO. Well, let's start with that last point you made, because um, I think that uh, the fact that uh, the EU uh, has basically opened the door to Ukraine uh, when Turkey has been on outside in the waiting room for, uh, I think it would now be 60, it's just under 60 years. Uh, you could see where the Turks would be livid about this. And uh, Erdogan, who uh, announced uh, actually while I was in Turkey that he was running again uh, and actually challenged the opposition to name somebody, uh, he, he could clearly say, look, uh, to his electorate, look at these Europeans, how they're discriminating against us. We're going to do the same thing vis-a-vis uh, -vis uh, Sweden and Finland. So I think this is actually going to harden his stance. Now, one thing that I've been hearing from a variety of Russians is that they believe that uh, this thing with Norway, with Finland and Sweden is not going to be solved anytime soon. It'll drag on. Some of them think it'll drag on for a year. It could well drag on till after the Turkish elections in 2023. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, there still could be a deal if the United States intervenes, but clearly opening the door to Ukraine the way the EU has. And for the EU, by the way, to say, well, you know, it's not for Turkey to do or say anything about what Sweden and Finland do. Well, you know, there are rules inside NATO. Uh, Jim can confirm that. Uh, you have to have a unanimous vote. And until they change the rules, Turkey is acting within its rights, even if you don't like the way they're acting. And on uh, the Russians uh, and Lithuania and their threat uh, yeah. of force? Yeah, I, I look, I would take this very seriously. Uh, after all said and done, um, when the, <laughs> we've seen what the Russians did in Ukraine, uh, and that's when they were denying that they were going to go in. They denied they were going in until the very last second. Remember, it was going to be a training exercise. Here, they're not even bothering to deny they're saying, look, if this goes on, we're going in in, in three months or so. Uh, they are, you know, the argument that, that this revolves around is that the Russians are saying, you're doing this to Kaliningrad because of what we're doing to Odessa. And, oh, by the way, the reason we're doing it to Odessa is because the Ukrainians mined the, the northern Black Sea. We told them that... Uh, look, clear the mines and we're not going to send naval uh, warships in. The Ukrainians said, we don't believe a word you're saying. 
And so the Russians are saying, we made an offer to Ukraine. It's on their, it's, it's the balls in their court. And meanwhile, you're doing this to Kaliningrad. So don't think we're going to take this sitting down. I think Jim is absolutely right. I don't know if the Russians will actually take military action. They're actually talking about what the term they use is military technical action. So it doesn't necessarily have to be tanks running anywhere. But Jim's right. NATO has to take this exceedingly seriously and come up with a number of uh, responses before Russia actually moves. Agreed. Uh, Patrick, you've been very patient. Uh, Jim, is there anything you want to add on the Turkish front before we move uh, to the other side of the planet where uh, stuff's going down as well? Um, just that I agree with Dub. <laughs> I agree with everything. <laughs> that but I'll add one more thing, too. You know, Dove mentioned that if there could be a deal made with the U.S., I, I agree particularly with that. I think that I think a lot of this Turkey uh, issue also deals with what they want to get out of the United States. And the, I think the demands that they are probably making, including uh, getting uh, that uh, that cleric uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, Gulen, uh, getting him extradited. I think they want to get uh, F-16 upgrade. There's a lot of things on their list that have been held up. And uh, and one of the but the number one is Gulen. And that is a huge problem. So, uh, so if, if, if a deal with the U.S. will lead to the, uh, Sweden and Finland going in, boy, there's a lot of chatter going on in Washington to try to figure out what the U.S. part of that deal would be because, the, the, you know, what, be, what is being requested is pretty high stakes by the Turks. Uh, and, and, and also uh, there is a, a belief, uh, as, as people know, that the, the whole Gulenis thing is actually was contrived, right, uh, that that Erdogan himself may have precipitated a coup to crack down in order to be able to stay in power, right? I mean, he wouldn't be the first autocrat to try to do uh, or to do something like that. Uh, Patrick, uh, do you do, do you want to add uh, anything uh, to this uh, conversation? Because I know you're a thinker that goes beyond just Asia and wanted to just see get your thoughts before we go over to what our uh, Chinese friends are doing, uh, what what's happening in South Korea, North Korea and elsewhere. Well, thank you, Vago. Um, a lot of thoughts about these issues, uh, including um, thinking about uh, the past and the Korean War. That, I mean, tomorrow is the 72nd anniversary of the invasion uh, of South Korea by North Korea, uh, a day that North Korea, by the way, is celebrating as the anti-American holiday uh, in which they have a threatened a thousandfold revenge because they deny that they invaded South Korea, even though that's exactly what uh, Kim Il-sung's forces did with the help of Soviet military planners. Um, I think, um, you know, John Foster Dulles, uh, and I'd love to come back to this talking about uh, some other things, talked about the reason why we went into Korea. Um, and he said it wasn't, you know, to fight the war. Uh, it was to stand up to aggression together, to show unity against aggression, that this must not stand. It very much is a message that should resonate because of what's happened over Ukraine. And we're still being tested now four months into this Ukraine war, whether we have enough international unity to send a, an enduring message that not just in the first four months, but for the next four years and 40 years, um, the international community can come together and, and stand up to naked aggression like Russia's invasion. Um, and yet at the BRICS summit, um, the five nations, uh, including with Putin, and she was hosting it. It was a virtual summit, their 14th BRICS summit uh, that included Modi, uh, our friend in India, um, but also Bolsonaro, um, 
in in South Africa. And as a result of that meeting, Xi Jinping made it very clear that alliances being strengthened um, are something that Russia and China, at least, are going to oppose. Uh, and that and that's a message again that connects Europe with Asia once again. Just as Prime Minister Kishida Shangri La, you know, made the point that if uh, Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. Um, and so you have Xi warning against alliances, a, a message that's welcome in Moscow, um, and yet a message that uh, Xi hopes will be intimidating against Australia, which seeks better trade ties, um, uh, intimidating against Japan as it prepares to possibly begin doubling its defense spending over the coming years, uh, intimidate the new South Korean government of President Yoon as he seeks to strengthen his defenses, including with multilateral uh, allies and partners. Um, and, uh, you know, so China is trying to show strength, uh, show intimidation, and it's obviously intimidating mostly the real red line in Asia, Taiwan, uh, first and foremost. And it's done that by, on the uh, on the sort of aftermath of at Shangri-La having uh, Wei Fengha say that, um, you know, we're gonna fight to the very end if we have to over Taiwan, China then announces that it no longer uh, agrees that the Taiwan Strait is international waters. In fact, they say there's no such thing as international waters, which technically is true if you mean those terms are not in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But technically, it's also wrong because, uh, you know, the territorial seas uh, of Taiwan are something that provide for international passage uh, for, for everyone in the, in the world. They are part of the global commons. And yet, the increased encounters and harassment of military forces from the PLA is going to cause uh, a crisis. Uh, this was something I asked uh, General um, you know, Charles Q. Brown, Chief of Staff of the Air Force this week when he spoke at the Hudson Institute. And I asked him, uh, you know, how does the Air Force prepare for the fact that we're gonna have more of these kind of close encounters? Are our people, our pilots, our operators prepared? And he said, yes, we are. And that's, that is a focus, that is the professionalism of our air forces, of our naval pilots, uh, that is going to be at the front line of a crisis that could happen any day in, in, in the coming years with China that will be very important to how much this could escalate into a larger conflict. Anyway, I'm digressing, but I mean, you know, the connection between the crisis and the war in Europe with possible crisis and war in Asia uh, is going to be a continuing theme. And I think one will see in the new national security strategy, if if it's ever actually produced, <laughs> um, you know you, what what you were saying uh, was uh, is very relevant, uh, Patrick. And Amanda Sloat of the White House spoke at the EU U.S. Uh, defense uh, at the uh, event this week, and one of the things she underlined is that these things are not separate. There, there's no China and Europe in this. It's the consistency of strategy and approach, uh, which is vitally uh, important because one then serves the purpose of the other. But uh, there's an important but and an important caveat here. Um, there's already a sense uh, that in the minds of some is becoming more pronounced that the administration is still trying to, quote, work with China. We still must work with China. Let's be careful about the rhetoric we put out about China. Let's be careful what we say about China. Uh, and we've seen that we've we've seen uh, folks being, uh, I think, tough and diplomatic. And we heard uh, the defense secretary uh, say a lot of the things that uh, have been a standard U.S. Uh, position. But anytime you hear that, you're reminded of what the Obama administration tried to do. Um, 
And the fact is the Chinese do what they're going to do on their terms and on their schedule, uh, largely. Um, is there anything to be gained by this rhetoric that somehow we can work with the Chinese and keep them separated? Because I think what separates the Chinese, I'm not sure is our words, it's more sort of, ooh, they could sanction us, ooh, they could punish us. We're in a vulnerable period. We will need another 10 years before we have that capability to resist it, right? They're, they're playing a complex, we're playing an Anglo-Saxon game of let's just be reasonable. This is bad for you. It's bad for us. Let's both win-win. And for the Chinese, there's no such thing as win-win. It's win-win it's is mine and lose-lose is yours. And I'm not necessarily sure that the language helps. I mean, are, are, we, are you noticing a change in language, a change in behavior, a change in messaging that's potentially problematic if what you're trying to be is universally tough? The Biden administration now 17 months in has indeed evolved its China uh, rhetoric, if not policy. Uh, it, it went from not even wanting to have talks for talk's sakes to talking now about just trying to shape the enabling environment uh, around China, not trying to actually change China. But it has also at the same time uh, been acutely aware, mostly from pressure from Indo-Pacific allies and partners, that the United States has to have a clear engagement strategy or policy, at least for China, even if it doesn't change China. And many in Asia assume it, it might change China, even if we're you know, more reluctant to believe that. So, so the administration somewhat in a bind on that issue um, as it tries to show that it, it can still deal with China, even if we can't get much cooperation on, in North Korea or climate or any other issue, um, we still have to talk to the Chinese. Um, at the same time, I don't, I don't see the administration caving in on you know, tariffs. That may change next week. We'll see. I don't see them caving in on a lot of the things that they inherited from the Trump administration uh, and that there's been a, a, that continuity largely from Trump to Biden on a hard-nosed China policy, I think has surprised Xi Jinping and surprised China generally. China's looking now mostly to hive off allies and partners and build relations with others like Russia. Uh, and that's why they're putting new pressure, I think, on the labor government in Canberra. And yet here, the, China trips on its, own, on its own actions, though. I mean, um, Xiaoxian, the Chinese ambassador to Australia, just gave a speech in Sydney this week where he tried to have his own revisionism, revisionism saying that these famous or infamous 14 demands that they made a couple of years ago of the Australians, um, he said those weren't demands, those were suggestions, basically. Uh, and yet at the same time, he was being heckled by a former stu student uh, in, in a group um, over uh, human rights abuses of the of Chinese Communist Party. And the ambassador went out to say, but there's no absolute freedom for this. You know, this is not obeying law and order. Uh, and you're thinking that's really the wrong message you're trying to send, probably, Mr. Ambassador, if you're trying to convince the Australians uh, a, a strong right. democracy that um, China doesn't insist on uh, abiding by the communist rules, but they're willing to uh, work with you and make compromises. So, Australia, you know, China is its own worst problem here. U.S. has a problem. And last point on this would simply to say we maybe had the first foreign policy speech of the 2024 election today uh, at Hudson Institute, in fact, uh, with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo calling for um, a very strong activist international policy, wanting to do more in Ukraine, but not combat directly. Uh, it sounds like Biden uh, wanting to do more with Taiwan, um, but not cross any red lines. That sounds like Biden. Uh, wanting to do more things with the Quad and AUKUS. Well, that's what Biden's doing as well. So I'm not sure it differentiates right. as much with Biden, but it does differentiate potentially from 
uh, Trump and DeSantis, uh, as as Pompeo is trying to say, look, there should be an agreed bipartisan foreign policy for strong alliances and allies. And I think that is the agreement. I think Biden and, and Pompeo basically are, you know, they may be different in terms of how much emphasis they would put on them, but they're both pressing on this internationalist alliance, deterrence, uh, you know, uh, national security framework. Dove, uh, really quick, uh, bring us up to speed on what's happening in Israel and why it matters and what's next. And also want to get your take on Biden in Saudi Arabia, our producer, who's always very clever uh, in in trying to come up with uh, solutions to problems, said, hey, wait a minute, one of the ways that the United States might play a role is to broker, for example, a deal between the Saudi uh, Live uh, Golf Tour and the PGA, uh, you know, a, a very uh, hot uh, flashpoint uh, in, in some cases, uh, and whether or not brokering a deal there would give the Saudis something that they might be actually more willing to part with oil uh, and, and, and somehow change and reset the relationship uh, potentially more positively. Give us your sense on both of those real quick, if you could, so that we can go on to the broader issue. Sure. Uh, on Israel, uh, the Bennett government uh, collapsed. They just had defections from the right wing of their party. Now, remember, their party is called Yamina, which means right to the right. So this was the people who were so far to the right that they probably were Netanyahu types anyway. Netanyahu has been trying to undermine the government for the entire year. It looks like he now has 60 votes already in the 120 vote Knesset, which means he's picked off some people. He actually seems to have picked off the current Minister of Interior, uh, Mr. Shaked, who was uh, uh, one of the key people behind Bennett. So he needs just one more and then he doesn't even have to have an election. He'll just overthrow the government, which is right now being led by Mr. Lapid, the uh, foreign minister. Uh, so Netanyahu may well be back. Uh, on Saudi Arabia, uh, the you know, if there was a deal between the uh, PGA and this new uh, new outfit, uh, it wouldn't be any different from the uh, those of you who are old enough like me to remember the American Football League uh, making a deal with the National Football League. Uh, initially, there was a Super Bowl. Uh, <clears throat> Green Bay won that one, if you recall. But um, then they cut a deal and they became one league, the American Basketball Association which had a basketball that had uh, colors of the United States flag, red, white, and blue, uh, merges with the National Basketball Association, and now you have the NBA. So this could happen. And, you know, with Biden in so much trouble with the, with the public, uh, you know, his polls are just down there in the dumps, uh, pulling these two sides together and having them shake hands and, you know, in a White House photo, he might think that might be a good thing to, you know, add a couple of percentage points to his polls. So, uh, yeah, it's doable. Let's let's go quickly around the horn. Uh, Michael, Jim, Patrick, and then Dove, uh, bring it home on on ter in terms of the messaging being sent. I mean, there is this overwhelming sense that basically three Justice Department officials stopped the, the dry run on a coup. Uh, in the United States, and absent them, it might have actually succeeded, uh, or the chances of it might have gone up. Uh, Mike Pence did the right thing. Uh, ultimately, a lot of people did the right thing. But in the future, those guardrails might not be there the next time around. And then sort of the, the, the rank political view of what the court is doing that goes beyond um, th that goes beyond politics. This group has two Republicans, two independents, and a Democrat on it. Um, you know, give, give, give us your sense, Michael, sort of walk us through Jim, Patrick, uh, very briefly on each of yours, but want to get a sense on how you guys think that this affects the, the United States geostrategically 
because my sense in my conversations, no matter where they are, it, 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 people are questioning the United States in ways that maybe they haven't. And they continue to ask those questions and they continue to ask, wait a minute, does Donald Trump come back and what happens then? Right, for the first time, French people are asking me about local secretaries of state and what that means when those checks and balances aren't there in the future. And, I, and I, I'm not sure anybody was asking those kinds of questions in my living memory of some five decades. Well, I think Americans are asking that same question. If Donald Trump comes back, then, then what? Uh, and I think a lot of folks, including a lot of Republicans, are hoping that th- that is not the case. And I think our allies are correct you know, to question us. I mean, right now, I think we're just kind of riding out the next you know, two and a half years because things wouldn't dramatically change until the next presidential election. Now, things will change. Uh, when we get a Republican House next year, which I think is really a foregone conclusion. But the Senate, as you mentioned earlier, really could go either way. Um, you know, and, and I think you know, what, what the most damaging thing, you know, although there's so many, is this the, the lack of uh, how truth doesn't seem to matter anymore. You know, I got a call yesterday from a, a fundraising firm for a candidate, uh, and they, they led off with talking about the sham of January 6th. And I'm like, what was the sham? You know, we all saw what, what happened there. Um, and, you know, the Supreme Court, as I think Dub mentioned earlier, I think it'd be more of an impact on, on these Senate races. Um, you know, Pelosi is holding a press conference right now on this. She's saying that reproductive rights are on the ballot uh, in November. And she let off her press conference by saying, I can't say good morning because it's not a good morning. Uh, now, the, the thing is, that these a lot of the election still a long ways away. I'll see how long these issues carry over. I still believe firmly that when it comes time for people to cast their votes in November, they'll vote with their pocketbook. And if the economy continues the way it is and inflation is where, where it is, um, that, you know, that, that Republicans stand to do still very well. This may cost them some seats. And, and there is also the, the question mark of whether Donald Trump decides to announce his candidacy before the November elections, if he does. Um, he's also on the ballot as well. And that takes some of the attention away from Biden. Jim, uh, give us your take, Patrick, and, and then Dove, uh, bring it home. Well, real quick, and you all have already said this. I mean, if the European allies are seeing this as yet another sign that uh, Trump wasn't a one-off, that in fact, this trajectory we've really seen in terms of U.S.-European relations and, and the U.S. in terms of where we go in terms of foreign policy and this type of thing, it was a trajectory that started uh, it accelerated certainly with George W. Bush, and then with Trump, it just went off the scale. Biden has come back, uh, and I think they're seeing that the one-off isn't necessarily uh, Trump. The one-off is Biden, uh, and that uh, uh, if uh, the Americans are on this this track, and the Supreme Court uh, uh, findings uh, announced today and, and over the past few days are just demonstrating more and more that is that at a minimum the U.S. is unpredictable. And, you know, whether Trump comes back or not, I think a, a certainty or a feeling of uh, kind of understanding where the U.S. is going, et cetera, that that is gone uh, and that the U.S. is seen through the eyes of the allies as being very unpredictable. And they've got to decide whether they want to hedge or not. You know, what do they do if they've got an unpredictable U.S. as an ally? Uh, that's that's their problem. And, that's, of course, Putin is looking on this and rubbing his hands saying, you know, the more chaos in the U.S., the better it is for me to to get what I want in Europe. And, and indeed, right. I mean, his involvement in 2016 and again in 2020 was de- de- specifically engineered 
to uh, fuel that unrest, fuel fuel that discord. Patrick, uh, give us your sense, and then and then uh, Dove, you can help us wrap it up. Go ahead, Patrick. I had this discussion with a group of uh, senior Asians just last night. In fact, in talking about um, disappointment, concern, they're watching very closely the same things Americans are watching uh, about the potential for civil unrest, the potential for uh, the breakdown of uh, church-state separation. Um, but at the end of the day, most of them are going to judge the United States by whether these fissures actually cripple American power in the Indo-Pacific. And if, it, if they don't actually come to the you know, conclusion that it's going to hurt America's engagement in the Indo-Pacific, then they're going to be less worried about the specifics of what's happening between the states and the federal government here in, in the United States. Um, it's still something they're very much watching in the 2024 election, though. Dove? I, I don't think it's going to uh, fade away over the summer. Um, you know, just as right wingers vote over culture uh, and tend to ignore economics. Right. We know that uh, cl- the working classes, the blue collar types uh, who might vote with their pockets very often don't because of culture issues. I think that'll be the same for a lot of the suburban housewives. Um they the, the abortion thing, the Democrats are going to play that up big time. Uh, it probably won't make that big of a difference in the House, uh, but it could in statewide elections in the Senate, even in some of the uh, even in some of the mildly red states and certainly in the purple states. So uh, watch out for that one. As far as uh, the rest of the world is concerned, uh, I agree with Patrick. It's going to very much depend on who's sitting in the White House in uh, 2025. Uh, If it's Mr. Trump, uh, then uh, we're going to have issues again. If it's somebody else, uh, even a Mr. DeSantis, by the way, uh, I don't think that we'll see much change. It's just going to depend on the personality who's in there. Uh, Dove, and I merely ask this question because uh, generationally you're closer and remember Watergate in a way very differently than we do. I mean, I was I was an eight year old at the time. Uh, You're a little bit older than that. Uh, not to date you, even though I think you're still very spry. Um, these hearings appear just like they did in 1974 to be highlighting a degree of criminality and rule breaking and norm breaking that is extraordinary uh, from an American context. Um, is there is is it is there any? And there are many who are trying to make those connections between the two of them. Ironically, almost exactly 50, five decades apart. But is this actually changing anything? Well, it's different. It's different, first of all, because it's it's not really bipartisan, whereas the Watergate hearings were. Uh, it's different because uh, these hearings will remain on YouTube and uh, all sorts of other video ca- uh, video screens forever. So that's different. Uh, it's different because uh, the Mr. Nixon ultimately decided that for the good of the country would not fight this, uh, even if uh, Mr. Trump has violated uh, many, many norms. Uh, nevertheless, it's really up to the attorney general to determine whether it's better to prosecute him or uh, alternately to not uh, go after him because it would further damage this country. Indeed, uh, that ultimate determination will be up to the Justice Department about whether or not the actions of the president, however criminal they look now, actually cross uh, the bounds of criminality. And again, I mean, that's that's the danger of this is we're in terra incognita across many uh, different fronts. Everybody, thanks so very much again for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Hope you all have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.